Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you, and we do it from scratch. This season is dedicated to the Fallout role-playing game, and if you don't have your copy of the rules, you can check out your friendly local game shop or bookstore, or if you don't have one of those, you can check out the Modiphius Entertainment website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. Okay, so this is normally where I'd be covering the corrections I need to make from previous episodes, but nobody's pointed anything out to me from last week's episodes, and I didn't notice anything when I was editing, so I guess we're good there. That means it's time to recap what we built last week so we can get to this week's build. We picked up last week at the cliffhanger point from the previous build, and our group treated the four Brotherhood of Steel members so they could gear back up. Paladin Zane insisted the group get as far away from the site as they could, and once they did that, she explained that they'd come to the area to investigate the connection between iRobotics, Garson Tactical, and Jessup Chemicals. She noted that they're all technically under the umbrella of a company called Stokely Incorporated, but also noted that company was forced out of business about 200 years or so ago. That being said, a number of former Stokely executives and employees spread out around the country and formed their own companies, and those companies tended to work together much as they had in the old days. She explained that while her group was in transit to the city, their bird took fire from individuals on the ground around the steel mill in Granite City, and the group was forced to land. They then had to fight their way across the bridge, where they were then attacked by a group in all-black gear. That group managed to get them, but only after several individuals in power armor entered the fray. One of the Brotherhood members described a patch on one of the uniforms, and while it was blacked out, the group recognized the outline as one for Garson Tactical, which seems to lend credence to their story. Paladin Zane noted that her group's first priority is to retrieve their communication gear, since they've got no way to get a hold of the rest of their people without it, and she hired the group to help. They decided to head back to where they'd been held, and after wiping out a number of ghouls, they found that the gear was not there, but they got a note providing them with a name and a location of a person supposedly responsible for providing supplies if needed, and the assumption is that it's supplies for the team that captured the Brotherhood team. That's where we ended last week's build, so we'll pick up right at that point. Paladin Zane will be obviously frustrated that the gear's not on site, but she'll also admit that she's not overly surprised, noting that keeping the gear here would be way too obvious, so to have it taken off-site would be tactically the smarter decision. However, since they have no idea where it could have possibly been taken, the note they've got is the only lead they have at the moment. Now, there are a number of options here for the group. They can head directly to the dome and ask around for Parker Donahue. I mean, our group's got a bit of a reputation at this point, so if they go in and start asking questions, uh, there's definitely going to be some people more than willing to give up what they know. The problem with that is that there will also be those who not only won't want to give up the information, they might want to attack the group. And considering the last time they were in the dome, there were a lot of bodies found, that might not be the best way to do things. Plus, wandering in there without an invite with a batch of uniform Brotherhood of Steel members would be a really good way of seeing an entire football field of people scatter like roaches in a cheap motel. Sorry about the visual there, but that's the one that came to mind first. 
So the group might want to consider the option of checking their sources for information. Now, as I see it, there are two sources that make the most sense, Mackenzie Cook and Victor. Now, if the group's been using somebody other than Victor as their main source of information, that person would be the one in place of him, obviously. I just keep using him because my group keeps using him. Substitute as need be. Cook's going to be a difficult one to track down. She's not in her office when the group drops in, but if they leave her a note, she'll meet them wherever they ask within 12 hours or so. She has her new puppy with her, and it has on a training harness and leash. The pup will excitedly run up to any group member who seems remotely interested looking for pets and treats. When Zane gets a good look at Cook, her face goes pale. She gets that wide-eyed, surprised look on her face like, I don't know, maybe when you've seen a dead person. In response, Cook takes off her sunglasses, takes a hard glance at Zane, and gives a small smile of recognition. Zane will be the one that speaks first. Mackenzie Cook. The Brotherhood thought you were dead. Cook responds. Technically, I was dead. I mean, my entire team left me for dead in the middle of a group of muties. <laughs> as bad as they got me, I should have died. Now, we're going to go back and forth here, so I'm going to make sure I pause for a moment when I switch characters. But you didn't die. I think you should explain yourself, Paladin. Very annoyed. Don't you use that rank with me, Zane. The moment the Brotherhood abandoned me to die, that rank was abandoned. I lived because a state patrolman risked his life to take out as many muties as he could until I could get away. It was touch and go for a while, but he treated me, made sure I got food and water, didn't care about the fact I was Brotherhood of Steel. He just didn't want to see the muties get someone else. So why didn't you contact us? Come back into the fold. Really? You have the stones to ask me that? We were always taught that the Brotherhood takes care of their own. I found out that day that the Brotherhood only takes care of their own until it means risking their own lives. Then, well, then maybe you're just on your own. That is not how we do things. We take an oath to... Yeah, yeah, the oath. Let me guess. The team reported back that I'd pulled some suicidal thing involving wading into a group of muties. Real crazy stuff. That's exactly the report Nightwalkin filled when the team returned. Said you told the group to retreat, then ran into the swarm with a couple of frag grenades and your laser rifle because your power armor had been destroyed. At this point, Cook will lean in, getting almost nose-to-nose -nose with Zane. Look, I'd love to debate this with you, but we've all got better things to do. I'll say this one time, then we move on. My power armor got destroyed because I had to shield my team from a muty suicider. Then two members of the team decided to turn tail and run. I tried to get everybody back in formation, but the other two ran before I got circled. At that point, I threw everything I had at them until I ran out of cells and grenades. Like I said, if it hadn't been for Deacon, I'd be a dead woman. So, whatever the asshole squad told you, they lied. Oh, and as an aside, my apologies for the profanity. I just really thought it fit here. Cook straightens herself up and addresses the group. So I'm assuming you came looking for me because you're hoping I can help you with something? By this point, I'm sure the group's been sitting back and watching the back and forth between Cook and Zane. For that matter, so have the three members of her team. When Cook's done basically chewing Zane out, Zane sort of fades into the background and just lets the group take the lead on this. When they mention what they found in the note, Cook's gonna want details, and when they give them, she's both shocked and impressed. 
I'd heard rumors somebody was using the old post office as a holding cell for people they thought were too valuable to kill. Haven't been able to figure out who that group is yet, but if what you're telling me is true, there's a world of hurt getting ready to drop down. She'll acknowledge Zane and her team. And regardless of how I'm feeling about the Brotherhood at this point, we're going to need them here before it's all said and done. If that's what you ran into at one site, who knows how much more firepower they've got their hands on. She looks back to the group. What I do know about this Donahue fellow is that he's the kind of guy that can get you things that nobody else can, or at least that's his reputation. You want full-size nukes? Supposedly he's got some. You want biological weapons? Supposedly he's got the hookup. You, You feeling me here? I don't set foot in the dome because, well, state patrol isn't exactly welcome in there. But I've heard enough from sources I trust to know he's got himself a sweet gig in there and is surrounded by people who blow up a building full of children to protect him. Whatever you do, be careful. Now, they can continue to chat for a bit, but that's all the information she's got. Zane and the other Brotherhood members don't say a word the rest of the time, but they do pay attention to how Cook handles herself. When the discussion's finished, the group's probably going to want to know what the deal was, and Zane lays out what she knows. Paladin Cook was sent to Kansas City a little over a year ago with five nights to deal with a situation involving the Institute. You probably haven't heard of them, but they're a menace in the Commonwealth, and rumor had it they were starting to establish roots in this part of the country. Needless to say, any group that wants to build synths to take over the world is something we cannot allow to happen. We lost contact with her and her team almost immediately, which isn't surprising. That happens more often than we'd like in missions like that. She was able to get word to us from some sources she and her team cultivated, and she reported that they dealt with the Institute issue, but something bigger had cropped up involving super mutants. Elder Cannon signed off on the request, but we never heard back from Cook. Six weeks later, one of our teams in Denver picked up an emergency beacon coming from Kansas. They took a flight over, found the five members of Cook's team, and took them back to their base. The report was filed the way I said it was, and Cook was listed as killed in action. If anything's said about Cook not going back to the Brotherhood, it's Monroe who responds. Typically, a member of the Brotherhood who gets separated from their team will eventually make their way back. However, there have been a number of incidences over the years where knights and scribes have chosen to live off the land and hide away from those who would do them harm when they lost contact. I only know of a small handful of paladins who've ever done that, and each case involved the rest of their team being wiped out. This is the first case I've ever heard of where a team abandoned their leader. Zane cuts him off. That's according to her. Do we believe the five men who returned and all said basically the same thing or the woman who chose to abandon the cause? Now, this would be a good spot for the group to speak up if they want to, allow the discussion to continue for as long as the role play is good, and just keep hitting on the points we've already made from Zane and Monroe as it goes along. Variations on the theme will get the job done. Now, once it seems that things have either reached the end or that they're going in circles, Scribe Tanner, who seems to be the type who'd fight to the death rather than run, speaks up. Look, Zane, I'm I'm not trying to muddy the water here, but it seems to me that the only one who was basically fighting to the death has the more believable story, at least to me. But maybe we can get back to what we need to do here and now, right? Cool? Zane agrees and again leaves their next move to the group. With the cook option out of the way, that leaves the victor option. 
When the group gets to Victor's office, Bruno suggests that it might be easier due to space if Victor meets with the group in the shack he let them use the previous day. In fact, he'll be waiting for them when they arrive. If anyone wonders how he knew to be there, he calmly states, A very annoyed state patrol woman sent me word that you might be stopping by. Victor admits that Cook told her nothing about the conversation she'd had with the group, and if they didn't speak with Cook, come up with some reasonable way Victor would have known this entire group of people was heading there. So he's going to need them to lay everything out for him. Once they have, he has a few thoughts of his own, and rather than quote him, since we've got a lot of dialogue in today's build, I'll do a bullet point of what he says. He knows Parker Donahue. Donahue tends to be someone who talks a big game, but has a lot of problems delivering. His claim to fame is selling a nuke shell packed with gunpowder and cloth to a raider group that managed to blow themselves up. He will claim to be able to get anything you need, but he tends to take the money and run. Anybody using him for supplies either doesn't know much about him or has something on him they're prepared to use if he doesn't come up with the goods. He does have a group of men and women who have sworn to protect him, though he has no idea why. The last he heard, they number in the dozens, so if a fight were to break out, there would be a high body count, especially among non-combatants. That's it on Donahue. He does, however, have some information from his sources. Donahue has been telling anyone who'll listen that he's gotten his hands on Brotherhood of Steel technology and he's willing to sell it to the highest bidder. Now, you won't tell anybody what it is. You put in a bid and can rebid as more come in. Also, according to his sources, Donahue intends to run this quasi-auction until he feels the bids have gotten as high as they're going to get. Since this started a couple of days ago, he's probably getting close to winding up. The last he heard, somebody was bidding around 10,000 caps, so the chances of the group swooping in and buying it are pretty slim. And no, he doesn't have the caps on hand to be able to cover that at present. And that's it. He tells them he wishes he had more to share with them, but that's what his informants have been able to get for him at this point. Since the clock is ticking, he suggests they come up with a plan to get their hands on that tech as soon as possible. Now, I lied. He does have one more piece of information he can give them. Donahue is supposedly set up in the former offices of Jessup Chemicals, so it stands to reason that his security is set up there as well. He wishes them well, then exits. So I think the plan here is pretty straightforward. The group needs to get to Donahue to find out what he's got, and our group's already been in that box, so they know how to get through to it. The only issue they're going to have is if they've had a confrontation with the guards on the door before. Now, I will say this about that, though. The group's a much higher level than they were previously, and if someone's going in there with power armor, guards on the door are going to probably part like the Red Sea. Of course, that'll also be a dead giveaway why they're there, but that's not really going to matter at the end of the day anyway, since Donahue's guards are on the lookout for four Brotherhood of Steel members, and they're going to shoot on sight regardless. And by the way, you know that, and I know that. What we don't know is if our group will think of that. If they do and offer to disguise the Brotherhood of Steel, they're going to refuse. After all, their uniforms are sacred, and they don't care if Donahue and his filth see them coming. So this is going to be a fight, plain and simple. So let's get to it. It's only about a 20-minute walk from Diamond Pass to the Dome, and much as expected, there's a couple of guards on the door doing whatever it is they do to check for riffraff. As I mentioned a moment ago, if the group has anyone in power armor, and Zane's probably in her power armor unless the group talked her out of it, the guards move and allow the group to enter. 
Now, they remember how to get back to the stairs to get up to the Jessup Chemicals office, so there's no need to retrace those steps. If you're interested in playing all of that out, just head back to that episode in the archives and plug that info in right here. Now, before we continue, we need to decide exactly what the group's up against. Donahue's got two dozen men and women protecting him, and they all use the gunner template on page 392. Don't worry about the numbers yet, just trust me. We've also got the four Brotherhood of Steel members, and that's the Paladin on pages 383 and 384, the Knight on page 383, and the two Scribes on page 384 and 385. So, that's covered, let's get back to it. Four of the gunners will start taking shots at the group when they're one level below but in line of sight. The group can do pretty much what they want to to deal with these four, but as they make their way around the ramp, they will run into the rest of the guards. Now, this is going to be a battle slog, and I apologize in advance for that. There's not going to be any negotiations. There's not going to be any talking. There's just going to be fighting. And this is where the not worrying about the numbers thing comes into play. If it looks like the group's at a disadvantage, anybody with mysterious stranger perk will have their stranger show up to help. I know the rules say before the combat starts, but let's give them a little leeway here. If things still look bad, they see and hear the sounds of multiple lasers being fired at once. Anyone glancing back sees Mackenzie Cook wading into the fight with a Gatling laser. And I know we did her stats a certain way once, but she was attempting to hide her abilities. We're going to use her actual stats, which are that of a Brotherhood Paladin. The only difference here is that she's using the Gatling laser stats on page 106, and she doesn't have the power armor, obviously. Now that should be enough to turn the tide for the group. So when it's done, they won't have any issues getting into the office. I mean, when you've got two dozen guards on your door, who bothers to lock anything? A scrawny, pasty white, red-headed male is cowering in the farthest corner of the destroyed office, as he just does. Looks like he wet himself when the fighting went on, and all he can do is plead for his life. We're not going to play out the conversation here. I think you know how to play it. He does have the communication gear and will gladly exchange it for his life. He'll report that he got it from one of his Garson contacts, a fellow by the name of Dawes, who brings him stuff from time to time in exchange for caps and chems. He'll note that Dawes didn't bother to tell him where he got it, just that he got it. He doesn't have an exact location for Dawes, but will note that he's heard he likes to be entertained at the Red Light Club, which is on Cherokee Street. He'll also provide a description of Dawes. White male, about 30 years old, around 6 feet tall, about 225 pounds, bald with a graying goatee. He's got a scar running left to right across the top of his head, so he usually wears a hat. But inside the club, for the record, no hats allowed. That's what he's got. The group can choose whatever they want to do with him. The Brotherhood will probably want him dead since they don't want to leave anyone around to rat him out. However, the group can talk them out of that if they disagree. Otherwise, you handle that like you want. So, the group's got the communication gear back and a line on the guy who brought it here. Now they've got to set up the gear and go get some answers. But we're going to get to that next week. In the meanwhile, check out our other podcast, Role-Playing History. This week, we cover 3D&T and Egon, which are, in my opinion, very interesting games from foreign publishing companies. Role-Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgingandproductions.net. 
Since this is the first show for September, I wanted to remind you again that Archon 46 will be taking place September 29th through October 1st at the Gateway Center in Collinsville, Illinois. Bad GM Productions will be there all weekend doing our thing from the game room, and we'll even be doing a live episode of Role Playing History on Saturday, September 30th. Heck, if there's enough interest, we might even do a live episode of the Build Along. If you only go to one convention this year, this would be the one to attend. And there's still plenty of time to get your hotel booked and your membership purchased. So check out the Archon 46 website, archonstl.org. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are utilized on this show for entertainment purposes only. To check out all the fine products produced by Modifius, check out your local game shop or the Modifius Entertainment website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. We are all over social media, so check the info box for this episode or our website, badgmproductions.net. Next week, we pick up with the group deciding what they want to do next. Plus, we have a game recap, since my group will play for the first time in a month. That should be interesting, to say the least. But that's all next week. Until then, I'm the Bad GM Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.